But I do want to invite up our lead pastor, Charles. So let's welcome Charles as he comes. Thank you, Mike. Wonderful worship, as always. Much appreciated. Happy New Year, everyone. It's great to uh, kick off the new year with you all back at the church. It's fun. Uh, we had uh, a good time in Mexico, so that was fun. It's hard to kind of come back after all that sun and beach. It was fun, but we're back. It's good to be back. Uh, I hope you all had wonderful holidays as well. We're kicking off open house Sundays today, so welcome to you all, especially if you are new to the church, kind of newish, welcome. It's great to have you. This is a fun place to be, and I hope you enjoy the service today. So we kick off the year this year with a new sermon series called Impossible Questions, Fresh Perspective. Isn't that provocative? So through this series, we are hoping to address really tough questions of faith and life. Questions you might have had in the back of your head all the time, but really not really uh, open to asking such questions at church because it would be kind of rude. You know what I mean? Right? There are all these, right? There are all these questions you might have about God, about life, the Bible. When you kind of feel like it will be too much, too pointed to ask such questions at church. But where else would you ask such questions, right? I mean, you're just left on your own to figure it out. So we want to address those questions because here, one of the values here is all questions are welcome. We want to face reality as it is. You don't want to pretend things away when they are actually there, right? So that's a good value. I think we will get healthier spirituality that way. All questions welcome here. So <clears throat> there are lots of questions like that, like if there is a good God, why do bad things happen to good people? We're going to address that at some point in this series, but today we start with the question, why does the list of sin keep changing? Right? Have you ever wondered that? How many of you have wondered that? That list of sin keeps changing. Don't you find that annoying? <laughs> right? I was talking with an, a, a friend of mine, just a bit older than me, and he said, you know, back in the day, I remember drinking was a sin. Smoking was a sin when I was growing up. Divorce, oh my goodness, he said. That was just unmentionable, unimaginable sin. You could not come and show up at church if you were divorced. And I said, I remember those days, yeah. And today, he said, it's all fine. It's as if there was all, you know, nothing. There's nothing to mention. There's nobody ever mentions it. It's all good, even divorce. Right? Don't you agree? Most churches today have accepted all these things, even divorce. 
I mean, even the holdouts, the conservative churches, they are very quiet about it, right? And acts as if it's all fine. And, you know, what the church used to do is really inhumane. So I am glad for the change, just to make it clear. But what changed? I've never heard any satisfying explanation except that half the people are divorced now. <laughs> so, you know, it would be practically impossible for the church to hold that line, you know? But is that how it works? The Bible, God, just numbers? Numbers is what dictates. You can just change God's laws and the Bible just because of the numbers. Don't you find that annoying, at least, strange, questionable? Or women leading. That used to be such a big no-no everywhere. You know, still is. In many, many churches, did you know the most respected, the biggest church in Manhattan, Redeemer, does not allow women to become pastors. Women cannot lead in church because the Bible says so, you know, and let alone Catholic churches, right? Churches were against women leading for pretty much all of history because of the Bible, but in this day and the age, don't you think it's crazy to ban women from leading? We have laws today out there. If you were like a, running a company and said, look, I believe in the Bible. We can't have women executives here. Women can't lead. What would happen to you? You know, that would not be, you have a law professor here. What would happen? You would be sued. It would not be allowed. <laughs> you know, that would be discrimination, right? And most of us would agree, right? That's not good. And church used to be consistently against women leading anywhere, everywhere. But now, now like many churches are okay with women leading. In our church, we have women pastors. There is no bar. Women can lead in any way they want. But the conservative churches, many conservative churches, still want to hold on to that and say, well, we can't fight the laws out there. We're okay with it. But inside church, women cannot lead. But I think, how does that make sense? If women leading spiritually in church would invite God's condemnation, why is it okay everywhere else in every sphere of life except in church? Is there no spiritual component in real life settings? What do you think? Of course there are spiritual components in real life settings. Otherwise, church would have no meaning or relevance. What happens out there is even more important. And so why is it okay for women to lead out there but not inside church? It doesn't make any sense. What's the rationale there? I'm not sure. Or slavery. Did you know the church supported slavery for 1,800 years? In fact, one of our greatest saints, St. Patrick. You heard of St. Patrick's Day. Who doesn't like St. Patrick's Day? Right? It's a fun day in this city. You go out. Well, actually, I don't go out. Got a back <laughs> problem. If I went out there, I'll get killed. But it's like one of the happiest days here. It's was 
great saint, wonderful. What he did was incredible. Just one of the greatest historical saints I respect. Did you know that he had to defend himself against Inquisition because he spoke out against slavery? Church was really into supporting slavery for 1,800 years. Yet today, slavery is considered the greatest evil ever, right? Human trafficking, child slavery. Anybody here uh, want to stand up and defend those things, right? I, I mean, that's like the worst thing ever, right? Worst thing ever. But this consensus only emerged the last couple of centuries, which is a very short time in the scope of church history. What happened? It's not the Bible that changed. I don't hear any conservative Bible-believing preachers standing up today and saying, we have to stand up for the Bible. We have to stand up against those you know, progressive secular culture that is going up against the laws of God that's so plainly written in the Bible. We have to defend slavery. We have to defend, you know, God and the Bible. Let's stand up and fight those progressive secular people. That's what many, many preachers did during the Civil War. Many. In fact, the greatest and the largest Protestant denomination today, Southern Baptist, was founded to defend slavery with those exact lines. And they are the most popular today. It's a very popular line back then. It was, and, and they continue. And, and I don't hear any explanation. What changed? What changed their minds? It's not clear to me. Except that times have changed. And of course, the LGBTQ issue today, the Bible camp of the church, very against the LGBTQ community. And indeed, there are a handful of Bible passages that do speak or seem to speak against same-sex relationships. But if we were to apply the same standards to women's rights or slavery or divorce, you couldn't live. Nobody does that. So it's just people picking whatever issue they want to pick and using the Bible selectively, just picking those passages you want to pick on, and then just using that to defend your cultural bias, pre-existing beliefs that you want to believe in, and saying, oh, you know, I have to defend the Bible. That is taking God's name in vain. That is using God and the Bible just to justify whatever you want to believe. Cutting up the Bible and just picking the passages you want to go with instead of having a consistent, integrous way of approaching the Bible that can serve as a moral compass that doesn't fail you, that doesn't make you a hypocrite, that doesn't make you so inconsistent and just ignoring what is happening. Just a niggling question in the back of your mind, like why does it continue to change, but you just ignore it. How 
do we handle this? Lots of people have noticed from both the right and the left. And this is frustrating. All this flip-flopping, all the changing of the mind without satisfying explanation or apology. So as Bible-believing Christians here at the river, what are we to do? How can we regain integrity? How can we regain consistency, an approach to the Bible that can serve, the Bible can serve us as an unfailing moral compass throughout the ages, throughout the changing times? How do we do that? Sounds good? That's the topic for today. So the first thing I want to say is that this is not a new issue. This self-serving flip-flopping caused by wrong-headed approach to the Bible was present from the very first days of the church. It plagued Christians from the very first. It's recorded in the Bible. In the book of Acts, chapter 15, it records the first ever church council ever convened. And it's because of this issue. You see, what had happened is all these unbelievers were becoming Christians. And a controversy arose about what to tell them about what is Christianity and how to follow Christian faith well. And so this is what happened. When Barnabas and Paul arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them, how the unbelieving Gentiles were becoming Christians and coming into the church. But then some of the Christian Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the laws in the Bible. So the elders and apostles met together to resolve this issue. So these Christian Pharisees, they are Bible-believing faction of the church. And they are standing up and saying, it's not enough for these converts to just come and say, I converted, I believe. They have to be then told, now that you are Christian, you have to follow the Bible. Sounds familiar? Right? That's what lots of Christians say today, right? Real Christians need to follow the Bible and what it says. Sounds very reasonable, doesn't it? And so the first ever church council meets together to decide on this issue and what to tell these, what to say to the Christians. How do we go forward? And this is what they decide. After much deliberation, they say, they conclude, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from eating food offered to the idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood or consuming meat with blood in it still. That's how, that's what they thought of. Then the apostles and elders together with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. What an interesting decision. 
I want you to notice that the collective decision of all the elders and apostles in the first ever church council is to say, don't worry. I don't, we don't want to burden you with anything except for the following. You know, there were three, 613 commands in the Bible considered to be absolutely binding on the people of faith, of Torah, 613 commands. And there is only four they mention, right? They, they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. One, don't eat food offered to idols. Two, don't commit sexual immorality. Three, don't eat meat of strangled animals. Don't eat meat with blood in it. That's only four. Have you, you can count, right? There's four here out of 613. That's less than 1%. Right? Everything else, poof, gone. Don't have to follow them. You know, feel free. Don't be burdened by any of those laws in the Bible. Don't worry about it. You know what I mean? Like, how, what gives them the chutzpah, right? The, <laughs> do we use that word? Um, what gives them the confidence, the guts, to say, oh, don't worry about pretty much everything that the Bible tells you to do. Just four. And what's even more interesting, you may have noticed, three out of four are about food. <laughs> you know what I mean? Three out of four is about food. Because back then, that was a big deal. The Bible uses words like abomination. Words that Christians today talk about with same-sex relationships and how important it is. Same words were used about eating meat with blood in it. So it was at the top of their mind back then. It was so important to church people, Bible-believing church people. That was the top issue, right? Because how else do you explain that only four are left and three out of four is about food? It must have been the biggest issue in their mind, the biggest sin in their mind that you cannot cross. But does anyone talk about that anymore? Does anyone talk about rare steak? Do Bible-believing conservative preachers organize protests outside steak restaurants? <laughs> right? We have to. Protest! No! Rare steak! Abomination to God! You must eat well done! Even hamburgers! You see any pink? Terrible! abomination. We have to, you know, just, you are bringing the wrath of God on this country by bringing God's wrath. It's abomination. Do you see that? Anybody say we have to stand up for the Bible, defend the Bible, defend God? Bible integrity issue? Just say no to rare hamburger. Who does that? But for the apostles and everyone else in the first church, it was that big of a deal. But that changed, didn't it? Why? 
Why does it change like that from the very beginning of church? You see, it's because there are two approaches to faith and the Bible. One approach is simplistic, and these two, what I've been describing, this inconsistent, self-serving, flip-flopping hypocrisy, but it sounds like you're being a real Christian. It sounds like you are real faithful to God and Bible, all the while actually opposing God. That is to say, well, just do what the Bible says. The Bible is from God. It's higher than you. Don't challenge it. Just follow the instructions because right there in plain print, you can see it. It says same-sex relationship is wrong. Simple. Follow it. Anyone who tries to talk about context, translation, liberal, willy-nilly fudgings people. You know, they are not real Christians. They're bad. They are heretics. They are not serious about faith. They're Christians in name only. Stand up for the Bible. That sounds strong in faith and very popular. But it will make a hypocrite out of you. And you will be, end up opposing God while thinking you are on the side of God. This approach is why the list of sin keeps changing every decade. Because the Bible also says rare steak is an abomination. You can't follow that. Or we'll be out taking slaves right now. Nobody can do it. That's not the right approach. I mean, the fact that Christian Pharisees are saying this, that should be a huge warning sign, don't you think? You know, the Pharisees, they were the biggest enemies of Jesus. Jesus warned us never to look like them, sound like them, be anything like them. Anything they do, do the opposite, was basically what Jesus said. So you want to stand with the Pharisees? Some Pharisees became Christian, and they brought the Pharisaic mind with them, and they've always been the strongest faction within the church. And yet, Jerusalem Council in this passage rejects them, basically, right? Advises not to do what they wanted the church to say. The council concluded, forget all the rules from the Bible. Just follow these four. And then later, Apostle Paul says in other parts of the Bible, actually forget about the food things. Three out of four gone again. <laughs> now you're left with one. And sexual immorality, well, that's, that's fairly ambiguous, right? You, you have to use your own judgment on what that exactly is. It's not that precise. Why? What gives them the confidence to ignore the Bible so completely? It's because the principle that underlies everything in the Bible, that's agape. Excuse me. They don't ignore the Bible. They ignore the commands of the Bible. They are using the principle, the unconditional love that undergirds the Bible that's the second approach to faith and Bible that will give you life-giving faith that will make your life better, that will help you stand with God. This is the second approach. Every moral issue must pass the test of agape. That's what the Bible tells us to do. 
Let me give you some passages about agape. This is the greatest and first commandment. Agape God above all else. And the second is, is like it. You shall agape your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All the Bible's command. What undergirds it is agape. Anyone who agape has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not agape does not know God, for God is agape. Agape is the only criteria. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through agape. All the commands of the Bible are summed up in one principle, agape. Agape does no harm. Therefore, agape is the fulfillment of everything the Bible requires. Isn't it so clear that Bible again and again, and, and there are so many other passages I can cite too, but we are running out of time. Agape is the spirit behind every command in the Bible. Therefore, every moral question must pass the test of agape. Then you get consistency every single time. Is slavery agape? Such a simple question. Is slavery unconditional love? Definitionally, no. If someone's skin is dark, you can make them a slave and treat them like animals. That's conditional, right? Differential treatment. Women can't lead because they are women. That's not unconditional. That's very conditional. No. Every single issue. We would have been on the right side of history and morality if only the Christian church had just done what the Bible tells us to do and use the agape as the principle, the judge in every issue. We would have been the prophetic voice that Jesus wanted us to be if we had just done that. We would have stood up against Nazis with unified voice instead of Catholic Church supporting them, losing Europe afterwards. Nazism is conditional. Jews are to be killed. That's conditional, isn't it? You stand up against that. We would have stood up against slavery. We would have stood up for women leading well ahead of anyone else if we had just followed the principle of agape. We would have been the prophetic voice, the salt and light of this world if we had just followed what the Bible tells us to do with all these things. And we need such things. We, we must never forget God is agape. Jesus is agape incarnate. Agape is the all-important cause in Christian faith we must embrace and advance. And if we do that, there's so much we can gain. Because we need a moral compass that won't fail us, that stands outside our own frame of reference. We have to always admit and acknowledge we are products of our culture, us too. We can look back and say, how could people not see that slavery is wrong? But nobody questioned slavery 500 years ago. Nobody questioned women's rights. 500 years ago. We are all blinded. A thousand years from now, people will look back and say of us, how could they have been so blind? 
we are all blinded by the light by which we see. So we need a moral compass outside of us that stands outside of culture that can point the way. If you have the eyes to see it, you can see the divine and the prophetic. Bible said there is no Jew or Gentile, free or slave, man or woman in Christ Jesus. What a prophetic declaration. Nobody talked like that 2,000 years ago. Nobody. But that is unconditional, isn't it? That is agape. That kind of thinking flows from agape thinking. What a liberating prophetic voice. This one declaration could have provided such a moral compass for the church throughout the ages, but we ignored it in favor of Pharisaic, Pharisaic mindset to create cost. We missed out on so much good stuff because of this simplistic thinking. Let's not stand with the Pharisees. Let's stand with Jesus. If we do, there's so much we can gain. We will not only have a compass that will make us a prophetic voice and be on the right side of morality every single time, agape can make you resilient. In the face of failures that can make us fragile, agape will make you strong. Because what makes you fragile is this way of thinking that we are worthy only if we are successful, beautiful, we have a lot of Instagram followers, right? That's what makes you feel better about yourself. That will also make you fragile because if you fail, what does that make you then? And inevitably, we all get old. I feel my age now. <laughs> I'm still young, right? I don't know. But I do get less and less energetic. And, I, you know, youth phase, vitality phase. Everything you hang your hat on, they will go. And then what? See, that makes us fragile. But if you really believed in unconditional love and worth from God, you will be resilient. You will be strong inside. You will be able to bounce back. And agape can also increase your creativity because agape casts out all fear. Without fear, you can think outside the box. You can start to really think of boundary-pushing things without fear. That will keep you interesting, which leads to my fourth point. Agape can make you fun to be with. That's a great value, right? Excuse my language, but agape will make sure that you will not become an asshole. <laughs> Sorry, but it's true. You know, you heard the phrase, grumpy old man? I find myself just finding more and more things to grumpy about. It's true. People these days, you know. <laughs> It's a great benefit. You really do need to make sure that you are not becoming more of an, you know. Agape is the antidote 
it will keep you interesting, keep you flexible in your mind, in your mindset, open-hearted. You will have a better chance at becoming someone who brings good cheer, encouragement wherever you go, relaxed, fun to be with, salt and light of the world. So, I can go on and on, but in sum up, to sum up, this church is centered on agape. We follow agape because God is agape. We must never forget that. We are strong in our faith, in God, in the Bible, but we have to use the right approach. And if we do, great things will happen. So let's do this together. Yeah, let's, let's get deeper and deeper into the right way of approaching God and faith and the Bible. And we will be a prophetic voice to the world and to our own lives that will bring life in all its fullness. Amen? Let's do it together. Now I want to invite you to chat with Charles upstairs right after the service. I talked about some provocative things. You might have more questions. So come up and ask. Any questions, welcome. We give you lunch. From Los Tacos Numero Uno. Great tacos. I think it's like the best, right? It really is good. So, you know, what's there to lose? You are here already. You know, spend an hour, eat free lunch. That's really good. And ask questions. And then next Sunday, come back. I uh, brought up some interesting things about the Bible. So I'd like to address the topic. Why should we follow the Bible if it has all these things I talked about that's problematic? Right? That's a natural follow-up question. Why does the Bible have these problematic things like rare steak is an abomination or passages that support slavery? How do we trust the Bible as a holy guide, if we see these things, I will address that topic. It's too much to address it in one sermon. But there is divine in the Bible. It is life-giving. And we have to find a way. Right? Next week. This is like a cliffhanger, right? Get you back. Anyway, let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are agape, that we are not just following a holy text. Every holy text has these issues everywhere. So we thank you that you have given us a way to move forward that is life-giving. Help us, O oh God, to experience you as the living God that speaks to us today to lead us, to change us, to transform us, help us to be a prophetic voice in this troubled world, to bring unconditional love, to stand for equality, to stand for loving and welcoming and giving life to all people. Let us be a voice for good news, the gospel that Jesus came to preach. In Jesus' name, amen.